Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Four. Charles made it clear that he accepted Edward's protestations of innocence in the Sansardos dispute. But in February, when it became clear that Edward was doing very little to rectify the situation and was also proving dilatory about paying homage, the French king threatened to seize Gascony. A crisis was looming, and Parliament met on February 23rd at Westminster to discuss it. In March, Edward suddenly ceased to pay certain of his debts to Isabella. Did he perhaps encouraged by the hostile dispensers, fear that her sympathies lay with Charles IV. In April, he made Isabella send a plea to her brother not to seize Gascony, instructing her to remind Charles that her marriage had been contracted to secure a lasting peace between the two kingdoms. The implication was that if war broke out, the marriage would have failed. It may be significant that during that spring, an unidentified person wrote to Isabella, advising her to instruct a French knight, who had been sent to England by Charles IV, to tell his master upon his return that the matter of the dispute over Gascony should in the first case be dealt with by Dispenser and Pembroke in council. Was this a warning to Charles not to involve Isabella further in the matter? We know very little of Isabella's activities or movements at this time, other than that on June 27th she wrote to Chancellor Baldock to request the appointment of Pembroke and others as justices of Oyer and Termina for her forest of Havering. It seems likely that she was still out of favour and, wisely, in view of her husband's unpredictable behaviour and the fear and confusion it engendered, keeping her head down. Pembroke had been sent to France to mediate with Charles IV over Gascony, but he died there suddenly, probably of apoplexy, on June 23rd. There were rumours that he had been murdered suddenly on a privy seat. But, whatever the cause of it, his death removed the last moderate restraining influence on Edward, who was now hopelessly enthralled to the dispensers. In July, reneging on his word, he instructed his envoys at the French court to refuse to hand over to Charles IV those English subjects who had offended at San Sardos. Then, to add insult to injury, he again asked for his homage to be postponed. At this point, Charles lost patience and declared Gascony forfeit. The next month, he sent an army to the duchy to take possession of it. In response, Edward appointed his inexperienced and unpopular 22-year-old half-brother, Edmund, Earl of Kent, King's Lieutenant in Gascony. This did not prove a wise choice, since Kent, although a magnificent young man of great stature and strength, was also a feeble and gullible individual who thought nothing of sanctioning acts of brutality or violating the laws of sanctuary. He immediately alienated the Gascons by extorting money from them, 
allowing his household officials to plunder at will and abducting a young girl who took his fancy. When Charles of Valois led an army against Kent, the latter proved disastrously ineffective in a military capacity and, after several losses, was tricked by Valois into signing a six-month's truce in a desperate effort to save what was left of Gascony. However, its terms left the French in possession of the greater part of the duchy. The outbreak of hostilities between England and France had a devastating impact on Isabella's life, for it gave Dispenser the chance to treat her as an enemy of the state, further undermining her position as queen and annihilating what little influence she had left. At first, he insisted she swear an oath of loyalty to him personally, but she refused, just as Henry de Beaumont had done. Then, on September 18th, the Queen's estates were suddenly sequestered and taken back into the King's hands, depriving her of much of her income. Allegedly, Bishop Stapledon had advised the King that this was necessary for security reasons, reminding him that the Queen's lands in Cornwall, with their valuable tin mines, were particularly vulnerable to invasion. But this was, at bottom, an overt attack upon the Queen, for Stapledon was hand-in-glove with Dispenser. There can be little doubt that Dispenser had maliciously persuaded the king that Isabella, as a Frenchwoman, was quite capable of plotting treachery against him with her brother. Back in 1317, Queen Marguerite's estates had been briefly sequestered when war with France had seemed imminent, creating a precedent. But Marguerite had been compensated with a substantial allowance. Not so Isabella. On the 25th and the 26th of September, Edward changed the arrangements he'd made for the financial support of his wife. And on September 28th, her allowance for her personal expenses was cut from 11,000 marks to a miserly 1,000 marks per annum. Isabella was outraged. She was not a woman to countenance such affronts to her dignity and her regal position, and she blamed both Dispenser and Stapledon for the loss of her dower. Dispenser was charged with this in 1326. In medieval times, money was no fair exchange for property, which conferred its own special status, and Isabella was more than ordinarily acquisitive. But there was worse to come. On September 28th, again purportedly on Stapledon's advice, Parliament ordered the banishment of all subjects of the King of France from the King's household and that of our dearest consort, which effectively deprived Isabella of the loyal service of those French servants who had been with her for many years, some since she had first come to England as a bride of twelve. On October 9th, the king ordered a general levy of all gold due to the queen, which went straight into his own coffers, along with money that he owed her. And on the 14th, the payment of her daily expenses was made the responsibility of the exchequer. In practice, however, the dispensers sent her from the king's coffers what they would. In effect, Isabella, one of the greatest landowners in the realm, had been reduced to the status of a humble pensioner. But Dispenser was by no means finished with her. She might be mother of the heir to the throne, but around Michaelmas, her three youngest children were removed from her custody on the grounds that, as a Frenchwoman, she might encourage them to commit treason against their father. The children were initially given into the care of Eleanor de Clare and Dispenser's sister, Isabella, Lady Montemer, who was married to Ralph de Montemer, the king's brother-in-law. John of Eltham, now eight, seems to have remained with Eleanor de Clare, but the two princesses, Eleanor, six, and Joan, three, were shortly afterwards sent to live with the Montemers at Pleshy and Marlborough. There's a consensus of opinion among historians that Isabella was not overly maternal and was even guilty of neglecting her children. 
But there's no evidence that she was less devoted than any other royal mother in an age in which it was customary for heirs to the throne to have their own households from infancy. Prince Edward had been given his at the age of five, but his three younger siblings had remained with their mother, which suggests that Isabella was actively involved in their upbringing. In fact, she seems to have been determined to play a controlling role in their lives rather than a passive one, and to have been ambitious for her children, which argues that she cared very much about what happened to them. Her great joy at being reunited with her younger children in 1326 is surely evidence as to how devastated she must have been at being forcibly parted from them, and how she must have suffered during the long separation. Any neglect seems to have been the fault of those who'd had care of them in the interim period. Furthermore, all Isabella's children, particularly the young Edward, remained devoted to her all their lives, which would surely not have been the case had she been a distant and uncaring mother, and the Jezebel that later generations made her out to be. Isabella was now a virtual prisoner. She'd lost her status, her husband, her children, her influence, her income, her friends, and her freedom and had suffered extreme anguish as a result. In a letter smuggled out to Charles IV, she protested bitterly about the sequestration of her lands and the loss of her French servants, accused Dispenser of depriving her of her husband's love, and complained that she was held in no higher consideration than a maidservant in the palace of the king, her husband, to whom she referred disparagingly as a gripple miser or one who had been mean to her but lavish towards another. Eleanor de Clare was now in constant attendance on her as her housekeeper or chaperone, whether she wanted her there or not. Dispenser and the king were using Eleanor as both jailer and spy, and had given her instructions to carry the queen's seal with her at all times and to read all Isabella's letters before they were sealed. Isabella, greatly enraged, managed to circumvent this supervision and smuggled out yet another letter to her brother complaining about these new indignities. But when a shocked Charles IV reacted with angry demands for fairer treatment for Isabella, Edward chose to ignore him. Instead, on November 18th, he gave orders that only 2,920 marks per annum or one pound per day, was to be allocated to the Queen for her food and drink. He was more generous when it came to the maintenance of her household, for which one thousand marks per day were allocated. But he also ordered that any Frenchmen left in England were to be arrested and imprisoned and their property confiscated. By this time, a number of Isabella's French servants had already fled to France, but some 27 persons had stayed behind, including her clerks, her two chaplains, Thomas Burchett and Peter de Vernon, her physician, Theobald de Troyes, and the Langs. All were now apprehended and shut up in scattered religious houses. Nor was Isabella allowed to secure their freedom by giving sureties for their good behaviour, a concession extended to other persons of rank. In France... Charles IV erupted in astonishment and fury at the arrest of his subjects, much to the embarrassment of the English envoys at his court. Like Isabella herself, the Lanacost chronicler believed that it was Dispenser who was chiefly responsible for the sequestration of the Queen's lands and the arrest of her servants. Lanacost also states that around this time, Dispenser persuaded the King to petition the Pope for an annulment of his marriage to Isabella, and himself sent Robert Baldock and an irreligious Dominican friar, Thomas de Hevard, to Avignon to present this petition. Lanacost's statement is to some extent corroborated by the fact that Dun Hevard was sent to the papal curia on secret business at this time, while the Annales Paulini refer to rumours of an annulment. 
What must have been so shocking to the Queen was not so much the vindictiveness of Dispenser and his desire to humiliate her, she'd learned to expect that, but the naked malice of her husband, which she'd only ever experienced as an onlooker. Now, as a result of Edward's anger with Charles IV and Dispenser's whispering campaign, it was directed at her. She'd done nothing to deserve such intolerable treatment. She'd been a patient, loyal and dutiful wife, a good mother, and a conscientious consort who'd earned a widespread reputation as a peacemaker. Before 1325, there's no hint in any source of any infidelity on her part. But now, her marriage had been destroyed, for the king had driven out the queen at Dispenser's incitement, and she was being unjustly vilified and cruelly punished for crimes she'd not committed. This was all because of her hatred of the corrupt favourite, and her husband's weakness in permitting that favourite to treat her so unjustly. Baker, who's hostile to Isabella, accuses her of denying her company and, no doubt, her bed to her lord. But if this is true, was it not understandable in the circumstances? All things considered, there can be no doubt that Edward II must bear the lion's share of the blame for the breakdown of the marriage, and that, by his own carelessness, he sowed the seeds of future tragedy. Dispenser's cruelty towards the Queen was apparently well known in diplomatic circles. Before long, Pope John heard of it in Avignon, and himself wrote to Dispenser reprimanding him for his harsh treatment and his misgovernment, and for causing bitterness between princes. When Dispenser, deeply perturbed by an attempt to murder him and the king by using black magic on wax effigies, wrote craving the Pope's special protection, John XXII tartly recommended him to turn to God and make a good confession and such satisfaction as shall be enjoined. No other remedies are necessary. Clearly, the Pope had got the measure of Dispenser, and this may be one reason why nothing more is heard of the King's petition for an annulment. Another reason may be that the marriage of Edward and Isabella had been contracted at the instigation of the papacy, in the interests of forging a lasting peace between England and France, and that it was now more than ever necessary to uphold that alliance as a cement in diplomatic relations. Furthermore, the only possible grounds for an annulment could have been consanguinity, and a dispensation had already been granted to allow for this. Moreover, it would have been dynastically catastrophic for the legitimacy of the heirs of the marriage to be impugned. In the absence of any further information, we must conclude that if Edward II had indeed asked the Pope to annul his marriage, he either met with a categorical and confidential refusal, or he withdrew his petition, for reasons that will shortly become clear. This would explain why, when Stephen Dunhevard reported to the King from Avignon on October 7, 1325, he made no reference to any matrimonial proceedings. Edward now knew for certain that he faced not only the prospect of a war with France, but also the threat of an invasion led by Mortimer. Dispenser had learned in the autumn that Mortimer was in Anal, trying to raise troops with the intention of sailing with an army from Holland or Zealand for the East Anglican coast. Diplomatic relations between England and Eno were already frosty on account of disputes over trade, and on October 24th, Edward wrote to Count William V of Eno, protesting about his harbouring of English traitors. The Count, however, took no notice. Mortimer's next move was to raise a force of German mercenaries financed by his wife's French relatives, the Joinville. The situation was critical, but the Pope was convinced it wasn't irretrievable. Around December, on his instructions, his two nuncios in Paris, the Archbishop of Vienne and the Bishop of Orange, 
suggested that Queen Isabella be sent to France to use her renowned powers of mediation in the interests of diffusing the crisis and settling the dispute over Gascony. This may have been the Pope's way of making it clear to Edward II that his marriage was a valuable diplomatic tool and that its dissolution would spell political disaster at this time, and it perhaps prompted Edward to withdraw his nullity suit. Baker claims that the suggestion that the Queen go to France originated with Isabella herself, and that, after receiving her appeals for aid, Charles IV took steps to facilitate her escape from England. Froissart also states that Isabella secretly did purvey to go into France. There may be some truth in their statements, but Baker's assertion that Charles enlisted Alton and Burgish to let the Queen go can hardly be correct, for the disgraced Alton was in no position to plead for the Queen. It's certainly possible that at Isabella's prompting, or at the very least in response to her pleas for help, Charles IV had originally suggested to the Pope that she come on a peace mission to France. And once this escape route miraculously opened up before her, Isabella was undoubtedly more than eager to take it. By her own later admission, she was so desperate to get away that she made every effort to appear friendly towards Dispenser, so that he wouldn't veto the idea. Going to France as England's ambassador extraordinary would not only restore her status as queen, but would also afford her a respite from the miseries she had to endure at home and remove her from the orbit of the hated Dispensers. There's no evidence, however, that the Pope sympathetic though he undoubtedly was towards Isabella, ever intended her mission to have any purpose other than to negotiate a peace. In January 1325, first the Royal Council, then Parliament, debated the Pope's suggestion. Dispenser was against Isabella leaving England. Although she was managing to dissemble her anger and loathing, and behaving towards him with studied courtesy, he knew he'd made a bitter enemy of her, and had every reason to fear that she might plot some mischief against him while she was in France. Yet Edward himself feared to go to France and leave his favourites unprotected, so sending Isabella seemed a sensible solution, and the king was tempted to seriously consider it. His envoys in Paris were ready to put pressure on him. On January 13th, John Salmon, Bishop of Norwich, intervened with Dispenser on the Queen's behalf. He was supported by his fellow envoys, the Earl of Richmond, who'd recently been freed by the Scots, and Henry de Beaumont, who had apparently made a superficial peace with the King and regained a degree of favour. On January 17th, John Stratford, Bishop of Winchester, who'd been on the same embassy and was newly returned from France, reiterated Salmon's plea. He added that Charles IV promised that if Edward would create his son, Duke of Aquitaine, and send him to France with the Queen to pay homage, then Charles would restore all the lands he had taken, and that this offer had been approved by the French Royal Council. In the end, the bishop's intervention backed by the persuasions of Charles IV and the elder Dispenser, proved decisive. Parliament decided that any expedient was preferable to pursuing the war, and by February 7th, the King had consented to Isabella going to France, with Prince Edward following as soon as a satisfactory settlement was reached. On that date, the English Council sent Thomas de Astley to the envoys in France to inquire whether it would be acceptable to the French if the Queen came alone to negotiate peace terms. The answer was in the affirmative. Edward's decision to send Isabella to France turned out to be the most foolhardy and tragic mistake he made in his entire life. It was to have devastating consequences for him. Yet the fact that he gave his consent 
suggests that Isabella had dissembled so cunningly, hiding her rage and humiliation at the treatment meted out to her by himself and the dispensers, that he really believed he had nothing to fear from her, and that she would loyally uphold his interests as in the past. His sanctioning of her mission also gives the lie to the assertions made the previous September in justification of the sequestration of her estates, that she was a threat to the security of the realm, and corroborates Isabella's own conviction that she'd lost her lands chiefly as a result of Dispenser's malice. Some historians have expressed surprise at Dispenser permitting Isabella to leave England, but he was, in fact, more fearful of the consequences of the king going to France and leaving him unprotected. Isabella's own submissive and outwardly courteous conduct towards Dispenser and Edward's evident belief in her faithfulness could have persuaded Dispenser that she was harmless. Moreover, he would assuredly have been glad to have her out of the way for a spell and unable to exert any influence on Edward. Almost certainly, he underestimated her in every way that counted. Edward, too, had been fatally mistaken in his assumptions about Isabella. Robert of Reading commented on the insane stupidity of the king, who, condemned by God and man for his infamy and his illicit bed, should never have put aside his noble consort and her soft, wifely embraces, nor been contemptuous of her noble birth. Much had happened to turn Isabella against Edward in the weeks since September, and already, it seems, she'd begun to conspire against him. More than two years of suffering Dispenser's cruelty and her husband's callousness certainly changed Isabella. It hardened her, and brought out in her latent strengths and faults that even she herself may not have suspected she possessed. More than ever now, she was her father's daughter. The humiliations imposed upon her hadn't humbled her, but had made her even more aware of her pride in her rank and her dynastic connections. The insults she'd endured had awakened a desire for vengeance and a ruthless determination to recover all that had been so cruelly taken from her. Living in constant fear had taught her to be courageous, resourceful and cunning. Her innate kindness and thoughtfulness had apparently been subsumed by the realisation that she must act to end this intolerable situation. No longer was she prepared to accept a passive, compliant role. For seventeen years... She had striven to be a loyal and dutiful wife, and she now felt she had no choice other than to embark on a perilous course of defiance. To allow matters to continue as they were would have exposed her to further degradation and danger, her children to a motherless existence, and England to the unbridled tyranny of the dispensers. In the light of later events and circumstantial evidence, it's been suggested that an embryonic opposition party was forming around the Queen before she left England. Some historians assert that it had been in existence as early as 1322, as a reaction to the Dispenser ascendancy. Although there's no evidence for this, many people certainly did resent the favourites and were ready to plot their downfall but it's unlikely that anyone would have viewed the Queen as the focus of a cohesive opposition party until after the sequestration of her estates, when it became plain to everyone that she had good cause for grievance. Isolated and spied upon as she was, Isabella would have found it difficult to establish and maintain links with disaffected persons at court, but she apparently did find opportunities secretly to enlist the sympathy and support of others. We know she'd managed to smuggle out letters to Charles IV, and in February she had a private meeting with the prior of Christchurch, Canterbury. Yet 
Before her departure for France, there's no hard evidence that she was actively involved in forming an opposition party in England, nor that she'd begun intriguing with the men who later became her allies. However, given the secret nature of underground political movements, one would not expect to find much in the way of evidence. Certainly, the enemies of the dispensers would have been more than willing to involve the Queen in their intrigues and to pass on messages or letters for her. Walsingham, writing much later, asserts that Edward had not considered it safe to allow Isabella's dower to remain in her hands as she maintained a secret correspondence with the enemies of the state. Had the King really suspected this, it's hardly likely that he would have sanctioned her going to the continent, where Mortimer, the deadliest enemy of all, still plotted against him. That's not to say, however, that Isabella wasn't already in league with the dispenser's opponents. She must have been sympathetic towards those who, like herself, had suffered at the hands of the favourites. And they may now have been looking to her to deliver the realm from the dispenser's. With her visit to France in view, the Queen had determined on securing revenge and satisfaction. But that would surely have depended on her counting on the support of others. At the very least, she was planning to reveal all to her brother, King Charles, in a bid to enlist his sympathy and his help in ridding England of the dispensers. Isabella may well have believed that if, from the safety of France, she threatened to desert Edward... His desire to avert a worse public scandal might drive him to dismiss his favourites. This is corroborated by the author of the Vita Eduardi Secundi, who, soon after the Queen had left England, expressed the opinion, Small wonder if she does not like Hugh, through whom her uncle, Lancaster, perished and by whom she was deprived of her servants and all her rents. Consequently, she will not so many think, return until Hewler Dispenser is wholly removed from the king's side. This chronicler was almost certainly expressing contemporary opinion, for he apparently died soon afterwards, and so was not writing with the benefit of hindsight. Whatever the extent of Isabella's schemes, and we do not know exactly what at this stage was in her mind, she was going to need substantiation of her suffering and support on both sides of the channel. Isabella could number among her allies, or potential allies, Adam Alton, Bishop of Hereford, Henry Burgish, Bishop of Lincoln, and John de Droxenford, Bishop of Bath and Wells, who are together referred to by Baker as Disciples of Isabella. All three were close associates of Roger Mortimer. Then there was her uncle, Henry of Lancaster, the late Earl's brother, John de Stratford, Bishop of Winchester, William Ehrman, a prominent churchman, and even the King's own half-brothers, Norfolk and Kent. Richmond, now in France, had shown himself to be sympathetic, and Henry de Beaumont was as dependable as ever. Baker says that Alton fueled the Queen's anger against the dispensers, exploiting her resentment at the loss of her estates. But although he was in a position to understand exactly how she felt, Alton was still very much in disgrace at this time, and is unlikely to have been in any position to influence Isabella. It was only later that he emerged as one of her strongest allies. Henry of Lancaster was a kind and honourable man in his mid-forties, who was known for his courtesy and balanced judgment. Having taken no part in his brother's rebellion, he'd been bitterly disappointed when, after petitioning the king for the earldoms of Lancaster and Leicester, to which he was the rightful heir, since Thomas had left no children, Edward refused him, and then, suspecting his loyalty, had kept him under close observation. After two years, however, the king was satisfied that Henry was loyal and allowed him to take possession of just one of his brother's earldoms, that of Leicester. 
but Lester had all along blamed the dispensers for his brother's death, and not only wanted his revenge upon them, but also Lancaster's name rehabilitated. He had defiantly assumed the late Earl's arms rather than his own, even though they had been declared forfeit, and had built a stone cross to Thomas's memory near Leicester. That Leicester was sympathetic to Alton is proved by his having sent a comforting and supportive letter to the bishop in 1324, after Alton, accused of treason for assisting in Mortimer's escape, had written to Leicester begging him to help him make peace with the king. But before Leicester could do so, Edward got to hear of his warm response to Alton's plea, and accused him, too, of treason. Thanks, however, to Leicester's able defence, and his position as the foremost magnet in the realm, he escaped conviction. Leicester would be moved to offer the Queen his support, because he wanted to rid the realm of the dispensers, and, more importantly, recover his rightful inheritance. There's no evidence that he ever intended any harm to his cousin, the King. John de Stratford, a worldly-wise statesman, had no love for the dispensers, who hated him, and had forced him to pay them £1,000 as the price of making his peace with the King, after angering Edward the previous year. He'd failed to press the case for the election of the King's candidate, Robert Baldock, to the see of Winchester at Avignon, and he himself accepted that see from the Pope, without first receiving royal permission. Edward's fury was such that he withheld Stratford's temporalities for over a year. Stratford's intervention in pressing for Isabella to be sent to France may have been made purely out of a desire for peace, but there's always the possibility that he had another agenda entirely, and that the Queen had somehow enlisted his support. Stratford may well have been one of the first to perceive her potential as a focus for the opposition to the dispensers. Kent, being of royal birth, particularly resented the dispensers' influence. Both he and his brother Norfolk, another wild young man, voiced criticism of the king for allowing it. Kent's spectacular failure in France had lost him royal favour and left him vulnerable to the blandishments of Edward's enemies. Whilst in Gascony, Kent came to rely on the advice of Sir Oliver Ingham, who'd gained a reputation as a king's man, but would soon emerge as a staunch ally of Mortimer, who may well have used Ingham to subvert Kent's loyalty and enlist him in the coalition against the dispensers. It's also possible that Dispenser came to harbour suspicions of Kent and took steps to neutralise him. Froissart stresses how much Kent feared Dispenser, and asserts that he and Isabella were both secretly told of the danger they were in from Sir Hugh and of their possible destruction unless they took good care of themselves. Coming in the wake of Dispenser's recent moves against the Queen, such warnings could not easily have been discounted. If Froissart's story is true, and it is seemingly corroborated by Edward's later refutation of Isabella's claim that she went in fear of her life from Dispenser, then it proves that others were able to pass secret messages to the Queen, and suggests that a network of intrigue did in fact exist. In 1326, Isabella revealed her fears that Edward, too, had intended to murder her. In a sermon given at Wallingford, Bishop Alton publicly stated that the king carried a knife in his hose to kill the queen, and had said that if he had no other weapon, he would crush her with his teeth. There's no way of verifying the truth of this, but it sounds like a threat that had been uttered in the heat of the moment during a marital row. Alternatively, Dispenser, using his customary bullying tactics, might have threatened as much to Isabella to spell out the consequences if she proved difficult. Having been warned that both Dispenser and the king wanted to kill her, 
Isabella must have been desperate to leave England. There's no direct evidence that Roger Mortimer was at this time part of any opposition party forming around the Queen. Had the King entertained the slightest suspicion of this, Isabella would never have gone to France. As it was, Edward ordered Thomas de Astley, one of his envoys in France, to obtain assurances from Charles IV that Mortimer and the other traitors and enemies of the King had left the realm of France before the coming of My Lady, for the avoidance of any perils and dishonour that might ensue, which God defend. Yet, as we've seen, it's more than likely that Isabella had long since come to regard Mortimer as a victim of the dispensers like herself. She had known him, probably quite well, for about sixteen years, and must have been aware of his unblemished record of loyalty to the crown in the years before the dispensers had forced him into rebellion. Isabella must have known that, in Mortimer, she could have her greatest potential ally against the favourites. Here was a man who'd try to have them assassinated, who wanted his revenge upon them, and who was prepared to plot an invasion of England in order to achieve that end. Had Isabella already thought of joining forces with Mortimer once she escaped abroad? It's inconceivable that it would not have crossed her mind. Early in February, the Queen held a private meeting with Henry Eastry, the prior of Christchurch, and confided certain secret concerns to him, chief of which might well have been the parlous state of her marriage and her fear and loathing of dispenser. Whatever it was, she not only won Eastry's sympathy, but also filled him with foreboding. On February 8th, he wrote to Archbishop Reynolds, urging that it would be quite right that the Lady Queen, before she crosses over, should have restored to her her accustomed and dignified state. Reynolds may have repeated this advice to the king, for Edward would shortly take steps to ensure that Isabella departed for France with full royal accoutrements. He did not, however, go as far as to restore her estates or her income. On February 18th, the king officially notified his envoys in France that the queen was coming, and stated that he wanted a prolongation of the truce, successfully concluded by May 26th or June 24th at the latest, so that Isabella could return home to prepare to accompany him on a visit to Gascony. On February 20th, the king issued letters of protection for Isabella's retinue. Charles IV also sent a safe conduct for his sister, which arrived before March the 5th, when Edward drew up a list of instructions for Isabella's guidance. Preparations for the Queen's journey were now almost complete. She was to travel in some state with a train of thirty persons, as befitted her position as Queen and formal emissary. Edward himself carefully selected all those who were to accompany Isabella, choosing only those whom he believed to be loyal to himself. Some were probably set to spy on her. Her retinue was headed by John, Lord Cromwell, and four knights. There were no French persons on the king's list, but he did include William de Bowden, the queen's former treasurer, as her controller, and he also appointed two high-ranking noblewomen as her chief female attendants. Joan of Barr, Edward's niece and Surrey's ex-wife, and Alastair Tony, the Dowager Countess of Warwick. The king was determined that Charles IV should have no excuse to say that his sister was slighted, and if she complained about the treatment she had received in England, her words would hopefully be given the lie by her entourage and equipage. Despite his friendship with Archbishop Reynolds having cooled, after Reynolds's championing of Alton, Edward had asked him to accompany Isabella to France. But Prior Eastry, evidently still fretting over what the Queen had said to him, dissuaded Reynolds from going, and supplied him with a plausible excuse, which the King apparently accepted at face value. Whilst in France, Isabella's expenses were to be paid by grants from the Exchequer, 
William de Bowden was initially given £1,000 and was also authorised to withdraw any funds that the Queen needed from the Bardi's branch in Paris. In total, they are known to have paid out to her £3,674.13 shillings and fourpence. On March 5th, the King informed his envoys in France that the Queen was on her way. Accompanied by Dispenser, he and Isabella then travelled down through Kent to Dover. At Canterbury, Isabella left her huntsmen and hounds in the care of Prior Eastry, who later complained to Dispenser that they were eating him out of house and home. Meanwhile, the Pope had written to the Queen to congratulate her on having once again assumed the role of peacemaker. Clearly, He'd been kept closely informed of developments, and not by Edward II, for the King did not officially inform John XXII of the Queen's forthcoming peace mission until March the 8th. Isabella looked to the land of her birth as a place of refuge and succour. At last, on March 9th, 1325, just after Easter, her day of freedom dawned, and she finally boarded the ship that would take her to France. The Queen departed very joyfully, happy with a twofold joy. Pleased to visit her native land and her relatives, and delighted to leave the company of some whom she did not like. On her departure, she did not seem to anyone to be offended, Edward later wrote, remembering how Isabella even bade a courteous farewell to Dispenser. Towards no one was she more agreeable, myself excepted. He recalled also the amiable looks and words between them, and the great friendship she professed for him on her crossing the sea. He had no idea that he would never see her again. This ends Disc 8. Queen Isabella, Disc 9. Part 2. Isabella and Mortimer Sweet Mortimer, the life of Isabel Chapter 7. Mortimer and Isabel do kiss when they conspire. Isabella disembarked at Vison that same day, March 9th, and with her company of thirty-one persons rode to nearby Boulogne, where she gave thanks to Our Lord for her safe arrival, and went on foot to the Church of Our Lady, and made her offering and her devotions. And the captains of the town and the abbot welcomed her with joy, and gave her lodging and hospitality, and they rested and refreshed themselves there for five days. On the sixth day they left Boulogne, riding on horses and donkeys, which they had brought from England. The Queen was escorted and accompanied by all the knights of the surrounding country, who had come to see her and entertain her, since she was the sister of their lord, the King. This is according to Froissart, who wrote many years later. His account is full of omissions and courtly embellishments, but this part of it seems sound enough. Where did Froissart get his information about Isabella? probably during his sojourn at the English court in the 1360s, when he was in the service of Philippa of Hainaut, Isabella's daughter-in-law. Isabella was dead by then, but Philippa had known her for over thirty years and would doubtless have heard the tale of her adventures on the continent many times. Froissart must have also picked up information in his native Hainaut, much of it from the Flemish chronicler Jean Lebel, Accompanied by her enlarged retinue, Isabella travelled via Montreuil, Crécy, Poix and Beauvais to Pontoise, where, on March 21st, she was received by 15-year-old Jeanne of Evreux, the young woman whom Charles IV had chosen as the future Queen of France. His second wife, Marie of Luxembourg, had died in childbirth the previous year, along with her premature infant, Louis. As the daughter of Louis of Evreux, Jeanne was Isabella's first cousin. On March 10th, Isabella arrived at Poissy 
to meet the English envoys whom she entertained to dinner for two successive nights. There she began preliminary talks with representatives of King Charles, only to discover that the peace negotiations were already in deadlock. King Edward had stayed in Kent, so that it would be easy for messengers to pass swiftly between himself and his wife. By the 31st, Isabella was able to report to him that, after King Charles had arrived at Poissy, she had been able to persuade his commissioners to resume talks. Charles IV was an intelligent and subtle man, who had inherited the good looks of his race and was called the fair like his father. He had also inherited Philip IV's severity with those who opposed him. His driving ambition was to be elected Holy Roman Emperor, and to this end he pressured the Pope into excommunicating his rival, Louis of Bavaria. This suggests that John XXII was Charles's puppet, which would explain his support for Isabella. But the Pope was also shrewd, and nobody's fool. Both Baker and Foissart give touching accounts of the meeting between Isabella and Charles. Baker describes how the Queen at last saw the dear face of her beloved brother and embraced him. According to Froissart, when the King of France saw his sister, whom he had not seen for a long time, he went up to her as she came into his chamber, took her right hand and kissed her, and said, Welcome, my fair sister. The Queen, who had little joy in her heart except at being near her brother the king, tried to kneel down two or three times at his feet, but the king would not allow her, and kept hold of her right hand and inquired most kindly how she was. The queen answered him calmly, but she couldn't contain her misery, and told him sadly of all the injuries and felonies committed by Sir Hugh Le Dispenser, and asked his aid and comfort. And when King Charles heard his sister's troubles, he took great pity on her and comforted her most kindly and said, Fair sister, stay with us. Do not be distressed or downhearted. We will find some remedy for your condition. The Queen knelt down and thanked him deeply. But the problem of the dispensers had to be shelved, for the avoidance of war was a more pressing priority. Isabella's task was not easy, and she later confessed to Edward that she was veering from day to day between hope and despair. Stratford had assured the king that her mediation would almost certainly secure the return of the Agenais, that part of Gascony that lay between the Dordogne and the Garonne, and other lands that the French had conquered the previous year. But Charles was reluctant to relinquish any of these territories. The papal legates who had suggested the Queen's mission were there to lend their support, and on March 31st a peace treaty was finally drawn up, and the bishops of Orange, Winchester and Norwich, along with Henry de Sully, were commissioned to take it to England for the King's approval. By the terms of this treaty, Edward was to surrender Gascony, Ponthieu and Montreuil to Charles, pending his paying homage to the French King at Beauvais by August. After the homage, Charles would restore all these lands to Edward except the Agenais, the tenure of which was to be the subject of arbitration by French judges. Until any treaty could be signed and ratified, however, the English were demanding a new truce in place of the humiliating one that had been agreed by Kent and Valois. But the French were not prepared to sanction anything but a prolongation of that truce. Isabella told Edward that by March 29th matters had reached such a deadlock that she was contemplating returning home. Instead, she made one final appeal to her brother and was able to report that the French had agreed to a new truce which would last until June 9th. She closed her letter with an apology for not having informed her husband sooner of all these developments, and said that she would stay on at the French court until the treaty and the truce had been successfully concluded, provided this met with Edward's approval. 
Accompanied by the English envoys, the Queen made a state entry into Paris on April 1st. She rode astride her horse, wearing a gown of black velvet, with such voluminous skirts that only the toes of her checkered black-and-white leather riding boots could be seen. Her unplaited hair was confined on each side to cylindrical crespinets of gold fretwork suspended from a narrow fillet, the very latest in headdresses. Many of the nobles came out to welcome her. She was escorted to the palace by Lord Robert of Artois, her cousin, the Count of Damartin, the Lord of Coucy, the Lord of Montmorency, and several others. Froissart places her first meeting with Charles here, but it's clear from her letter of March 31st that it had already taken place at Poissy, and afterwards she stayed with all her company with the king at Paris. A week later, Edward issued safe conducts for the Bishop of Orange's embassy to come to England, Stratford and his colleagues having returned home by April 10th. On April 18th, Edward ordered the promulgation of the new truce. The draft treaty reached him on April 29th. Its terms were by no means acceptable, but Charles IV was demanding a prompt response. And on the 2nd and 3rd of May, Edward reluctantly agreed to them, asking only to be informed when the Agenais would be returned to him. On the 6th and 8th of May, he granted Stratford, Airmen, and the other English envoys further powers to treat with Charles IV. Matters hadn't turned out anywhere near as well as the king had hoped, and on May 14th he complained to the Pope that the Queen had not been granted all that she'd requested, and that this was the fault of the legates who'd suggested her mission and held out false hopes for her success. Doherty outlines a convincing theory that the unsatisfactory terms of the treaty were the outcome of a deliberate attempt by Charles IV, Isabella, Stratford, Ehrman and the legates to discredit the dispenser administration and give Isabella a pretext for staying on in France. However, he also cites Isabella's letter of March 31st as proof that she'd made every effort to reach an acceptable settlement. Furthermore, in this letter, she asked Edward's permission to remain in France, and we know that he gave it because he sent her funds for her support. By May 18th, Stratford and Ehrman were back in France. That evening, Ehrman dined with Isabella in the royal palace at Vincennes. Soon afterwards, Charles IV appointed commissioners to treat with the English envoys. Isabella was present when the peace treaty was drawn up on May 30th at the Palace of the Cité in Paris. It was substantially the same as the draft sent to Edward and contained only an imprecise reference to the King of England one day receiving justice concerning the Agenais. The treaty was ratified by Charles IV the next day and by Edward II on June 13th although Edward can hardly have found its terms congenial, and must have wondered whether or not it had been worth his while to send Isabella to France. She'd been no more successful than any other ambassadors, except that her brother, out of affection for her, prolonged the truce. Indeed, for all his fine words, Charles had been largely impervious to her persuasions, granting only a few financial concessions for the love of the Queen of England. There was nothing more for Isabella to do in France, and it was probably around now that Edward began to agitate for her return, writing to her frequently of his desire to have her with him. But Isabella had no wish to go back and live under Dispenser's tyranny. She may well have decided to prolong her stay in France for as long as possible. Isabella's expenditure in Paris was heavy. Up until September 29th alone, it amounted to 2,841 pounds, 17 shillings and sevenpence. 
After that, the accounts are incomplete. Prior to June 17th, these expenses were met by the Exchequer, the money being taken out of the Queen's confiscated revenues. But on June 17th, these payments abruptly ceased, possibly because Edward saw no need for his wife to stay in France any longer. In July, Charles IV married Jeanne of Evreux. Shortly after the wedding, doubtless embarrassed by her dwindling funds, Isabella left Paris and took up residence in the royal castle at Chateauneuf, some forty miles west of Paris. King Charles came to her rescue and from July 18th to September 1st subsidized her living expenses. During this period, she lodged at various places near Paris, including Saint-Hilaire, Poissy, Mantes, Saint-Germain, Corbeil, and Fontainebleau, and spent her time visiting churches and entertaining. Among her guests were the new Queen of France, the Abbot of Saint-Denis, the Earl of Richmond, Louis de Clermont, the Countess of Foix, and the Papal Legates. John Salmon, the Bishop of Norwich, died on July 6th, and as soon as she heard, Isabella put forward the name of her friend William Ehrman, or Eamine, to the Pope. Ehrman, a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, had been Keeper of the Privy Seal until January 1325, when he'd been elected to the See of